Welcome to The Growth Factor, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. Today, as part of our family, you will experience the life-changing and spirit-nurturing Word of God. Please enjoy this time with us as we're committed to helping you grow in knowledge, grow in faith, and grow in God. St. Mark Baptist Church, you grow here. Welcome back to the Growth Factor podcast, a broadcast ministry of the St. Mark Baptist Church here in Little Rock, Arkansas. My name is Pastor John. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at St. Mark. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Philip L. Pointer, Sr., the senior pastor here at St. Mark Baptist Church. And we're having a special episode this go-round as we try to make it make sense around the topic of racism and in the American church. We about to get into it. Oh, it's going to be good tonight. It's going to be good. <laughs> and we have a very special guest. We brought in some reinforcements. We brought in the heavy hitters this go around. Our special guest is Dr. Jamar Tisby. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Color of Compromise. And he is a brother of mine. We've known each other for about a decade. Yes, sir. Welcome to the podcast, sir. It is a privilege, honor to be here with you all. And thank you, St. Mark. And I really cannot wait to get into this session as we try to make it make sense of racism in the American church. Yeah, if you've joined us over the past several months, you know me and Pastor Pointer have seated the idea of this particular session tonight because we've been talking about uh, we've talked about the white church very much and we've talked about the idea of racism in the church Mm -hmm. existing in the church and specifically in white evangelicalism well we have someone who i know and have known for the past 10 years who is a historian Mm -hmm. has a whole phd in history and we're going to talk with him tonight uh, we're going to be joined by my friend Jamar Tisby, who is the New York Times best-selling author of the book The Color of Compromise. He also has a second book called How to Fight Racism, and it is a step-by-step guide on how to fight racism as a courageous Christian. So we're excited to have you tonight with us here, Jamar. Gentlemen, I am honored. The, 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 the actual folks here, this is amazing. Y'all have made my week. Thank you. <laughs> Man, look, excited to have you grateful for the work that you've done, but especially for your time with us tonight, yeah. uh, particularly as we are, you know, this year, uh, Jamar, we, we're really emphasizing what it means to dig deeper in scripture, not just to study it and understand it, but ultimately to live it. Come yeah. on. And uh, the scripture's emphasis on justice cannot be denied. Amen. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, let's, let's talk about it tonight. Let's get, let's get into it and, yeah. and, and, uh, and let's hear uh, the work you've done and how we can use that work as walking out the word as believers i'm yeah. ready let's go did you supply your listeners with seat belts at home <laughs> i hope because so because they need to buckle up <laughs> i hope they're ready i, hope they I really hope they are ready <laughs> yeah. so we've, we've talked about history on the podcast history of, of different topic areas and we want to start there tonight because that is where your sweet spot is as a historian yes. and i know you love teaching folks history even if it's black folks knowing and learning about black history yeah. there's some things that folks might not know uh, about our history and we talked about this before and that may be intentional Mm -hmm. that's right that's right so uh i want to talk about your background a little bit because we joked about this before we got (laughs) on so you have a bachelor's of arts from notre dame yes you have irish a master's of divinity from the reformed theological seminary now us baptists aren't going to hold you again (laughs) (laughs) and then you have a phd in history from the University of Mississippi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, somebody might look at that resume <laughs> and say, how did you arrive here? Okay. At the color of compromise yeah. and the racism in the American church. How did you get there? So you, did, you, you don't see on the official resume, but my, my, my first graduate class in history was at Jackson State University. Ah, okay, okay, okay now, now, if that now, helps. now, right now, 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 now. Okay, you are we right We got now. a Morehouse Howard guy here. So he, he, he's super black education. I love it. Um, yeah, yeah, I think actually one of the, the, the benefits and blessings mm-hmm. um, that, that God gave me unintentionally on, on my part was to have a diverse set of experiences, particularly okay. educational experiences. So I'm very grateful, in fact, for a Catholic education. True enough, Notre Dame is, was and is still 
overwhelmingly majority white, but mm -hmm. a Catholic education has a very long and rich intellectual tradition and social tradition. Mm -hmm. So the Catholic social justice tradition, papal encyclicals addressing uh, industrialization and the dignity of workers and uh, on through the, 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 the centuries. And one of the contrasts that, that, that uh, sticks out to me one of the reasons I got into justice work was through service projects, mm -hmm. which I engaged in through Notre Dame. And on campus, they had something called the Center for Social Concerns. Okay. And it didn't occur to me until years later that if I had been at, say, an evangelical campus, that word social, mm -hmm. you know, they yeah. would not have had most likely mm -hmm. anything quite similar to that that was steeped in a theological tradition of justice and was valued and encouraged as as part of the faith so i'm very grateful for that i didn't know that's what i was doing at the mm -hmm. time i just i wanted to to go to a college that was close enough to home that i could get there on the weekend but far enough where parents couldn't pop in so yeah, that, yeah, that, that worked yeah. out well close enough to be close far enough to be far <laughs> that's yes. right that's right <laughs> reformed theological seminary was interesting so my first career was as an educator. I was a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. After I graduated Notre Dame, joined Teach for America, that's how I came from the Midwest down to the South, where I, I still live in the Delta on the Arkansas side. And that I, I got there through Teach for America. I was a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. Then I was a middle school principal for mm -hmm. grades five through eight for a number of years. And toward the end of that time, I, I, I had always known at some point that I wanted to go to seminary all the way back in high school, which tells you how cool of a kid I was. <laughs> we weren't all six feet plus basketball players, John. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's just not That's my testimony. Today, huh? <laughs> so um, I knew it was time. Yeah. And um, I, had, I had this background. I had gotten exposed to Reformed theology in college mm -hmm. at this Catholic school, ironically enough. And um, I, I thought at the time that I, I wanted this, you know, very sort of structured, rigorous theological education. We wanted to stay in the South. I'm married. We have a son. And so uh, uh, we, we, we upped and moved to Jackson, which is a chocolate city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jackson, Mississippi has the second highest proportion of black people of any city over 100,000. It's 80 percent black. Um, but it Re Reformed Theological Seminary, I could count on one hand the number of black people, yeah, yeah. black Americans there. Yeah. Um, and then the University of Mississippi was an education within an education. Hmm. So I wanted to go to a place where not only would I learn this history of race and racism and racial justice, but I could actually be an active part of it. And, and I'm actually very proud of the history department at the University of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Not everything that goes along with it. <laughs> yeah. But the history department that ha has been leading the way in things like taking down the Confederate monument from the entrance of campus, following the lead oftentimes of students to take down uh, the old state flag that had the Confederate emblem on it, changing the mascot from Colonel Reb, then to a black bear, now to the land sharks. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's a thing. Yeah. Um, so, so you really got an education, not just in history, but in activism in a sense. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to dig deeper yeah. into, into your experience at RTS, at Reformed Theological Seminary. Again, it's going to be a very, very different theological perspective than your undergrad experience at Notre Dame. That's right. Uh, so talk about how that shaped. You say you were exposed to, to Reformed theology there at Notre Dame. Notre Dame. So yeah. then talk about how the experience at RTS shaped you theologically. Did it strengthen some things? Did it challenge some things? How did, how did it help your evolution and understanding mm. theologically that ultimately will bring us to the work you, you've, but you've been engaged in? It introduced me to a disciplined study of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's not, you know, the, the Holy Spirit works and you can just crack open your Bible and, and understand, right? Mm -hmm. But <laughs> study to show yourself approved, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so um, it introduced me to a, a disciplined way of thinking about the Bible, understanding the historical and cultural context. One of the most valuable parts of seminary was learning Hebrew and Greek in summer intensive classes. Mm -hmm. That was a boot camp. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, my, my, my. But, it, you know, it unlocked the word, which I've been reading for years and years and years mm -hmm. in a new way. Um, I would say the, the survey classes of books of the Bible and genres of the Bible were really, really helpful. Um, I emphasized missions. 
because mm -hmm. that was the only place in the curriculum that really took seriously cross-cultural realities. Ah. And, mm -hmm. and so even then, I wanted to get as much as I could. The other thing I did, which I advise all seminary students to do, is take ownership of your education. Mm -hmm. So they gave me the syllabus, but I never followed the syllabus no, as written. I'm yes. like, okay, this is okay, this is okay. I need this, 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 and this. And I go to the professor, can I write the paper on this? Can I read this book instead? Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be very beneficial. Sure. But I'll be honest, Pastor, um, after the events, I would say from about 2015 to 2017, a lot of stuff in there we can get into, um, I came to distrust a lot of the theological education I'd been given mm -hmm. because I said, how Eurocentric uh, or how white-centric is this? Yeah. And I'm honestly still on a journey to, to say which tools can I keep and still use mm. and what must I jettison because it's more cultural than biblical context. And, mm -hmm. and we did not set him up to say right. these things, right. John. Listen, we did old, not. old Pastor P and Pastor John, <laughs> we did not set him up for we, this. We have, we have been laboring in that very space yeah. uh, throughout our journey uh, mm -hmm. this year in study. Um, yeah. Those cultural bridges that we are to build directly to the time of the text and to the people of the text who are African people. Yes. We have inherited so many Eurocentric interpretations that have caused misunderstandings that mm. ultimately lead to these misapplications right. of biblical truth. And so we got to go back to the, to the root, as mm -hmm. it were. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been working through uh, in this time of study. And so it's, it's amazing to hear um, and encouraging to hear that in work that matters to people every day where the rubber meets the road in real life, mm. um, that we wrestle with that theology yeah. to get to the place where mm. uh, I teach that our students at, at the college all the philosophy should result in ethics. What are we mm, to do mm, with this? Mm, yeah. mm. Uh, and so I think that's a, that's a critical that's a critical component, not throwing the text away, yeah. but looking at how we've been taught to interpret it. And I'll say this, that mm. even black folks in predominantly black church contexts need to be very conscious and aware of this because what often gets exported as the go-to resources. Mm -hmm. Typically, it's the ministries that have the most money so they can do the multimedia ministry. They have the videos, they have the conferences, they have the books, they have a whole ecosystem. And even globally, mm -hmm. the kind of Christianity that is exported from the United States yeah. is not necessarily coming yeah. out of St. Mark, which would be a phenomenal, right? Mm -hmm. Just because of the way the resources and the history has gone. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's something, it's the same uh, dynamic to where you would go in some of these old black churches with the stained glass windows and they would still have a white Jesus. Have a white Jesus, yeah. you know? So yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. all of us need to be very conscious uh, yeah. about how we consume and, and what we use. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your time at the University of Mississippi because there's a rich history there mm -hmm. in terms of uh, black progress at University of Mississippi. And I'd like for you to let folks know a little bit about some of the things that happened at the University of Mississippi with James Meredith, mm -hmm. if they may not be aware of it. And let us, was that part of your decision to go there, to be able to immerse yourself in, in some of that? Exactly, exactly. Um, so much of our, our, so much important racial history has happened in the South, in the Delta, in Mississippi, at places like the University of Mississippi. James Meredith, 1962, becomes the first black person to integrate the university. It's important to know there was a riot on campus yeah. to prevent this one single black student from integrating, and it was deadly. Two white people ended up dead. And so uh, there are still bullet holes in the Lyceum, the main administration building on campus. National Guard troops had to be called in. It was a hot mess. Uh, James Meredith, as we record this, is still alive, right? which is important to, to, to help us get a grasp of how recent this history is. Mm -hmm. And so when I was, uh, uh, I served as an interim principal in Jackson for a year, his granddaughter was, was a student at my school. Mm. Um, he was in my Sunday school class. Wow. I'll never forget. I had just moved to Jackson. Wow. Um, I was interning at a church and was teaching Sunday school. There was this older gentleman and uh, he, he would never speak up in class, and he would just sit there with his eyes closed, just kind of nodding, listening along. And I could tell by the way people interacted with him, he was somebody significant, but I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I finally asked somebody, it's like, who, who is this man? He's like, that's James Meredith. Wow. I'm like, why are you sitting in my class? <laughs> like, I have something to teach you. So, so to be, this is one of the things that 
I say about the South is that mm. there, bigotry has no boundaries. Mm. Racism is not confined by region. But what is a little bit different about the South is that this is the theater um, on which so much of our, our racial struggles have hit, from the Civil War to mm -hmm. the Civil Rights Movement. And so to be in the presence of somebody like James Meredith, you know, that's not something I can do everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was part of the education. Yeah, yeah. that's excellent. That's, that's excellent. That's good. So I want to just let our listeners know, if you do have questions for Jamar, certainly drop them in the chat on our social media platforms. Our team are compiling those. And I'll see them here on my computer as well. So make sure you drop them in the chat. I and mean, we yes, might, I, I, I am this good looking in real we, life. That's hilarious. <laughs> we might get to, to them. We <laughs> might get to them. Maybe, maybe. So, so we're going to get to some theology later. I know somebody had asked um, what is the scriptural basis for our conversation tonight. And we can get into that for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of it. All, all of the, the whole of Bible. All of it. <laughs> there you go. There but you I want to talk to you about your book here uh, for some historical perspective, because you said in your book, the festering wound of racism in the American church must be exposed to the oxygen of truth in order for it to be healed. Mm, mm. Why do you think folks who are supposed to be committed to truth are so afraid to seeking it out? I think oftentimes you have Christians who are more devoted to the culture than to Christ. Mm. Mm. So in the U.S. context in particular, the way white Christians practiced and understood the faith was wrapped up with white supremacy and racism. Mm -hmm. The wheat and the tares grew together. And uh, one of the things that we have to talk about is white Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. And white Christian nationalism is more of a cultural and political movement than a theological and spiritual one, one that is committed to what they interpret as theological conservatism, but is most certainly a political conservatism as well as an authoritarian, patriarchal kind of structure that sees um, the entire uh, uh, fate of the church as wrapped up in the fate of the United States of America as if they are almost one in the same, which is yeah. why they look at the Constitution as an almost divi divinely ordained document. Mm -hmm. This is why we have constitutional originalists or strict constructionists, mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, this is basically divinely inspired. You can't mess with <laughs> the Constitution as if yeah. it wasn't written by slaveholders, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so when you have that, and, and the insidious part is they've not been exposed to anything else. So what they understand as Christianity mm -hmm is white Christian nationalism. Therefore, when you try to critique white Christian nationalism, they think you're critiquing the faith itself because yeah. mm -hmm. they have no other context for reference. And so when you start to bring up these truths about how even in the name of Christianity, uh, there were pro-slavery Christians, which should be an oxymoron, right? right. There were pro-segregation Christians. And even today, there are people who are anti-racism, anti, anti right? <laughs> um, and, 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 and so when you bring that critique, they think you are attacking Christ himself. They think you're attacking the Bible. And, and all of those things is, is just part of the reason why uh, bringing the light of historical truth is often so fraught. Mm. And, and I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to get into the historian's mind in and around this because one of the great myths of the U.S. Um, uh, as a nation in terms of identity is this myth of it being a Christian nation right, right. when most of the founding fathers were not professing Christians at all. They were deists and theists, especially uh, Jefferson, uh, Franklin, those kinds of persons. When in history can do you have a or was there a period where we saw this turn to re-identifying the U.S. as a strictly Christian nation as opposed to one that believed in divinity but not necessarily the one of, of the Bible? When, when did that turn happen and what was the impetus for that? Hmm. So there's always been a thread of people who, who, who thought of the United States as a Christian nation, going all the way back to the Puritans mm -hmm. wanting to come to this new to them land mm -hmm. in search of religious freedom and then setting it up as this city on a hill. Yeah. And you, you find this littered all over um, the colonial era, this religious language like this is God's chosen nation. This is where Christianity can truly flourish. And there was a degree of truth in the sense that they were coming from a 
a, a Europe where, where many of the countries had a state church, mm-hmm. and you had to be Anglican, or you had to be Catholic, or you had to be whatever, right? And so there was a degree of autonomy here that they had never experienced before that they were celebrating, but what that turned into, along with the racialization of peoples, indigenous peoples and then African descended people, was this idea that the only right way to be Christian mm-hmm. yeah. was, a, was, a, was a, a European, a Eurocentric style of Christianity. And then, you know, they, they imbued all the documents and the, the structure and the political with that, that same sort of aura of the divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about indigenous peoples. Mm. We talk about the Puritans coming over. And um, in your book, you mentioned that Christian missionaries treated these indigenous folks as a blank slate upon which they would write the gospel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How in the world <laughs> could they arrive at some, that type of conclusion that these folks didn't have a culture, mm-hmm. that they were beastly? Mm-hmm. And how, how were they able to arrive at that conclusion given what scripture tells us about the Imago Dei in human beings? Right, well, I mean, you get Europeans who were basically lost, <laughs> landing in uh, Caribbean islands and, and parts of North America, and they have large ships, clothing, armor, weapons, uh, all of these things, and they view themselves as civilized. Mm. And they view these indigenous folks who have a tribal culture, different language, none of the same technological trappings. They view them as inferior and understand the world at this time is quite small for most people. So you grow up in a village you know everybody in the village. You usually take on the profession of your father um, or your homemaker. And, and now this quote unquote new world is opening up through exploration. And you're encountering these people who are so different in every way. But unfortunately, instead of approaching with curiosity and humility, mm-hmm. they approached with uh, an attitude of superiority. Mm-hmm. So when they say, you know, indigenous people, they thought they were basically blank slates. Even if they thought there was something there, they thought it was inferior to everything European, including religion. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was um, cultural assimilation became part of proselytization, mm-hmm. such that to accept Christianity in the European mind meant to become culturally European. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you have the schools, the boarding schools for indigenous people. This is where you get family separations. This is where you get uh, torture and trauma of, of, of cutting off the language uh, of, of native peoples um, because they equated Christianity mm. with their version of European, quote unquote, civility. And mm. that's what they were called to do. Yeah. And what, what a critical idea this is, as you're talking about, as we're talking about in this time, what it looks like to interpret scripture. Um, the, the idea that that culture is a context, That's right. but it should not ever be a uh, a standard, so to speak. Culture mm-hmm. evolves, it changes, it ebbs and flows. Um, and one of the great struggles we have, I think, as we kind of bring this forward into um, our our intent to come out of pandemic is the idea that we feel like we must maintain a certain mm-hmm. culture even in the church mm-hmm. in order for it to be church when yeah. it's not it's not it's absolutely not necessary at all for for the culture to be in such a way um, when the principles of truth are what really matter and, and I, just to give yeah. one concrete example um, the 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 Native American princess Metawaka otherwise known as Pocahontas she was celebrated mm. because she married this white man started wearing dresses, learned English. And so basically they were saying, look, these folks can become wow. European. Yeah. Or these folks can become Christian, which was to become culturally European, yeah. right? Like that was the model. Or short of that, yeah. mm. they will be good servants. Mm. Mm. That's what Columbus wrote in his diary. Mm. It's like these folks are reasonably intelligent. Um, you know, they know the land they'll make good helpers. Yeah. There was never any consideration of these are equals we can learn from. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, at, at some point, there was an intentional shift from indigenous folks to African folks, yeah. particularly when it comes to enslavement. Right. Um, why did that shift occur? And what was the thought process behind that from a historical perspective? This is such an important question because we have to realize that 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 uh, race-based chattel slavery was not inevitable. 
Mm. This was not written into some, you know, cultural, economic, cosmic code. Yeah. There were deliberate choices by people to develop this system. Mm. So one of the things, I mean, we're going to come back to again and again the topic of money because mm. this undergirds yeah. almost everything we're talking about. Mm. So Europeans got here and they were colonies, which meant it was an extractive uh, enterprise. So, mm. so you would go to these new lands, new to Europeans, and you would extract the natural resources, be it lumber or gold or cotton eventually, right? Mm. So, so originally, you know, they were just looking for ways to cultivate crops and make money. Mm. Well, in, any, in the capitalist system, the way you make money is you maximize your profits and you minimize your loss. Mm -hmm. You know this as a, as a pastor, an executive pastor looking at budgets. Typically, the biggest slice of the budgetary pie is wages, salaries, and benefits mm -hmm. to, to employees. Well, if you want to increase your profits, then the quickest way to minimize losses is to cut those wages out. Or better yet, you don't pay your laborers at all. At all. Mm -hmm. And so this is what began to develop first as an economic system, but then you had to have an ideology to undergird the exploitation of your laborers, which is how racism begins to, to develop. And you have this phrase, racial capitalism, that economists and historians talk about, because the two are intimately tied together. So with indigenous people, at first, there was the idea that we can force them to labor for us, but here's the problem. They know the land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have relatives. If, if, you know, Will goes missing, <laughs> his folk are going to come look for him. Mm. Um, if they get a moment where the overseer's not looking, I know this trail in this path better than you do. I'm, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> and numbers-wise, they were decimated through disease, through forced displacement, mm. through war and killing. Mm. So there weren't even as many. Uh, by contrast... You could ship African people over. They were completely cut off from their people, their mm. language, their land. They were much easier to control in that sense. And it was quite lucrative. It became quite lucrative because now you have an entire trade that's built up as an economic, economic enterprise in addition to the actual labor they do. Mm. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. Incredible. Now, now, you mentioned, and we all know the old adage that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the, um, in the U.S. You mentioned in your book, and I thought it was interesting, that the um, black and white evangelicals actually typically prayed, sang, and worshiped together before emancipation. Yes, yes. What did that... now? Before emancipation. <laughs> Before emancipation, yeah. I think we know what was happening. So, <laughs> yeah, so what yeah. did that look like from a historical perspective? Because when I read that, I was taken aback a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So first of all, just like uh, indigenous people, indigenous people had their own cosmology. They, they, they had their own vision of the supernatural and of gods. So did the earliest African enslaved people. They were closest uh, chronologically, familially, and spiritually to the motherland. Mm -hmm. So they carried those beliefs with them. And when you had European missionaries talking about Jesus and the God of the Bible, they're like, what you talking about? We, we got our gods, and even if we didn't, we sure are not going to worship the same God you do as you enslave and whip and rape us, right? So for a long time, there was not widespread acceptance among enslaved African people of Christianity. That started to change with the first and second great awakenings, mainly because the bar of entry was low. So you would have these camp meetings, these outdoor mm -hmm. meetings, which were interracial. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they heard the same sermons, the same prayers, and they would, you know, accept Christ under the same, you know, sort of uh, preaching and banner. Mm -hmm. But then once you did have a little bit of acceptance of Christianity among these enslaved peoples, mm -hmm. there was always the matter of control. Yeah. And so there was always a tension between plantation owners and missionaries because plantation owners didn't want missionaries to be sharing the gospel because then these enslaved Africans would get all these wacky ideas about equality yeah. and freedom and, <laughs> and liberty, liberty yeah. and be like, ah, I shouldn't be enslaved. And so plantation owners didn't want to lose their laborers. And so uh, they would come up with compromises. So one of the examples in the book, 1667, the Virginia Assembly, a group of white Anglican men, Christians, uh, made a law saying that baptism would not emancipate an enslaved African, Native American, or person of mixed race descent. Mm. This was a compromise between slave 
owners and missionaries. Yeah. Right? I can get baptized, but I'm not. But however, yeah. yet <laughs> what they said, yeah. in effect, was God can have your soul, right? But we own your body. We still got your body. Yeah, mm-hmm. incredible. And, and, and that dichotomy between the spiritual and the material has um, remained to this day, and explains a lot of the tension between black Christians and white Christians and the way we view things. So, so all of that was true. And mm-hmm. then to the extent that they did, um, that, that, that black people had the, 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 the freedom to worship, it wasn't really free. Mm-hmm. So they would keep them in the same congregation as white people to keep an eye on us. Mm-hmm. And there was, it was essentially second-class citizens in the household of God, yeah. mm-hmm. which should not be but they would have to sit in segregated seating. They would only hear sermons on certain topics. They were not allowed to congregate together, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many things that, that are significant historically, even to the way we do church today. You, you speak about the, um, the early resistance to Christianity. You know, there's the milieu of those who have come from um, African Christian backgrounds than those who come from Islamic that's backgrounds right, and right. those who come from indigenous faiths. Um, there's a there's a there's a mixture of of religious beliefs. Then the reality is you speak about the first and second great awakening. That's where we get the altar call from. Mm-hmm. The invitation to Christ <laughs> right. comes from that which, as as as, as um, Dr. Mm-hmm. Tisby just said, kind of in a sense lowers the bar of inclusion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it used to be, and many systems of faith still have that there is a an inclusion based on doctrinal confession that you have to be catechized and you have to know the doctrines of faith well it that became you can walk down the aisle and say That's i felt right. something or i saw something right. or i believe something and now you're included and that persists to this day mm. That's that's the way most of us join church. That's right. That's right. Through that same process. Um, and and so as we see that coming forward we we're, it it's amazing that the history of Christianity in our nation and the racist realities inform the way we think about and do church mm-hmm. even right now. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, and, 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 and so speak about, again, how that, that hour then became segregated after emancipation. What, what then lo- leads to this? Of, okay, let's keep an eye on. Now here comes emancipation. What then leads to this separation as it were, of, yeah. of the black church that we have, and then now the white church. What, what, what creates that reality? I want to go back briefly to a, a very important point that you made, which there was indigenous African Christianity from the earliest days of European contact with North America. So there's good evidence that even among the, the 20 and odd Negroes in 1619, some of them may have been Catholic mm-hmm. from Africa. Yes, And so uh, a lot of white people, white Christians, will say, well, slavery, God ultimately used it for good because it introduced Africans to Christianity. <laughs> right. And I'm like, two things. Number one, they, it was already there. It was in Africa before it was, it was in Europe. Before it was in Europe. <laughs> yeah. And number two, you couldn't think of no better way <laughs> to share the faith than enslaving people. Yeah. Like, I, you know. Um, so, so that's just a very important point you made. But then you said, what happens after emancipation? It's important to note hmm the level of resistance to the abolition of slavery was so intense that it took what is to this day America's bloodiest war Mm -hmm. to actually bring about emancipation. I don't think we should gloss over the fact that literally hundreds of thousands of people had to die and a portion of the country had to declare secession before you got rid of this institution of race-based chattel slavery. Again, money is a big part of that and people not wanting to lose their source of income and wealth. But in terms of the church, after the Civil War, first of all, leading up to the Civil War, uh, the three major denominations split along Mm. the lines of slavery and whether to keep it or not. Uh, uh, First, the Methodists, then the Baptists, then the Presbyterians all split Mm -hmm. on this question of whether Mm. Christians could be Christians and still own human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that all is proceeding and leading up to the Civil War. Then after emancipation, black people hightailed it out of these white churches where they were not treated as full and equal in the body of Christ. Yeah. And so first you have this splintering of 
they weren't even denominations. It was just sort of groups, individual congregations that eventually sort of organized themselves into loose groups. But this is significant to Arkansas in that the National Baptist Convention was the combination of several Baptistic uh, groups and fellowships of black people. The first president was Elias Camp Morris, who had his church, Centennial Baptist Church, right there in the Arkansas Delta. Mm -hmm. And he was the president for over 20 years till his death. Mm -hmm. And so for about a quarter of the life of the National Baptist Convention, it was basically headquartered mm -hmm. in the Arkansas Delta, which is a phenomenal history that almost nobody knows about. Right. Mm -hmm. And now, sadly, Centennial Baptist Church is crumbling mm -hmm. its, its bones. And um, every time a big storm comes in, you know, more of the roof, the roof is completely caved in, mm. but you can still see the state was designed by a black architect. Wow. It was, it's, it's just wow. an incredible thing. I'm gonna do a quick plug here. We are uh, working on making a, 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 a short documentary about uh, the Elaine massacre and the Centennial Baptist Church and, and how these religion and race intertwine. Mm. And so you'll be hearing more about that and we'll be doing fundraising to try to gather funds to, to create that documentary project. Mm. All that to say, let me put it this way, there would be no black church without racism in the white church. Right. Mm. Which is to say there would be no ethnically, racially specific churches if there was true equality and equity in these white traditions as well. Black folks, broke off, not because of any deep theological differences. They're not debating the Trinity or the divinity of Christ. They just said, we want to be treated as equal image bearers in the household of God. And if you won't do that in your houses of worship, we'll create our own. Mm. Yeah, incredible. So I'm feeling in my spirit, there okay. are a couple of saints in the chat who may be saying, I want to have some Bible study. Mm. So <laughs> let's talk about um, what the Bible has to say about race. Yeah. In your book, you talk about the Bible having two clear and distinct um, descriptions of race. Can you just unpack that a little bit about what scripture says about this idea and concept of race and then how folks took those concepts or didn't take those concepts and shaped their own idea of race? Yeah. Well, it's important to understand race is a social construct, social construct. which means it's not rooted in biology mm -hmm. or ontology or spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it race as a concept is about five, 600 years old, and it changes over time. So what it was in Columbus's day or mm -hmm. the colonial era is not what it is in the 21st century. Yeah. That's the social construct part. As societies change, so does even the definition of who is white and who is black, right? Mm -hmm. So what does the Bible say about race? The Bible doesn't use race or racism in, in the same way that, that we now do, but what the Bible does certainly do is speak to the dignity of people and about how to relate to people across different uh, divides. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's important to note is the Bible is an extremely multi-ethnic document, mm -hmm. right? You have the, the, the Scythians and the Philippians and the people from Niger and Egypt and all of these places. The Bible is, is, is an incredibly diverse uh, set of people groups. And what to me is the critical teaching is all the way back in the first chapter, the first book of the Bible, when God said, let us make humankind in our image yeah. and in our likeness. Mm. And so we individually are image bearers of God, which in, in, in imbues us with infinite dignity, worth, and value, and we're worthy of respect. But also, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that Western Christianity does is it individualizes the text. Mm -hmm. So every teaching of the Bible is meant for me and me alone, and to be understood individually and in, 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 in personally, right? And yes, it is that, but it's also corporate. Very much so. And, and most of the ways that the Bible addresses people is as people groups, mm -hmm. the Israelites. Mm -hmm. the Jewish people, the Samaritans, right, mm -hmm. as groups. And so apply that to the image of God. That means there's no single people group mm -hmm. that accurately or comprehensively images God. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, God created the tribes and tongues and nations so that the diversity of the people groups would give us something of a reflection of the diversity and beauty of God himself. And so we flatten that out, mm -hmm. we've watered that down. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we go back to those roots and those foundations, yeah. 
my, 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 it's going to help me understand somebody who's from a different region, somebody who speaks a different language, and certainly somebody who has a different amount of melanin in their skin. So I think mm. we need to go back to the basics. <laughs> I, I want to dig into that because one of the things that we fuss about all the time all is the, the hyper-individualism of, 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 of biblical text and therefore our interpretations of it and applications of it. Um, me, mine and maybe ours, us four, and no more, so to speak. <laughs> uh, let's dig deeper into that idea, especially as it works its way out into yeah. racism. The idea then, so if our theological foundation is that all of humanity equally and, 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 and then corporately together bears fully the image of God, um, racism or race, the concept which is about five or 600 years old, the evolution of it, uh, talk, talk about how people groups have used that the concept of race. For, for instance, when Irish first came over, they weren't considered white. white. Italians were not initially considered white. And unfortunately, what ends up happening um, in many of our contexts, for those of us uh, who are descendants of enslaved people, sometimes we have the sense that mm. whiteness is rightness. Yeah. And so we seek to assimilate to that That's right. in many ways. Talk, talk about that and how it has affected the church, as it were. And, and especially, let me go back to your experience at RTS. Were, were, were there among the four or five black folk there? Did you encounter those who said, well, I gotta, it's got to be right because the white professor said it? It's subtly and implicitly. And, 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 and look, even I adopted this idea the way um, my podcast co-host Tyler Burns puts it is, we, we, because listen, we're all swimming in the same white supremacist waters. Mm -hmm. So we're all, even as black people and people of color, absorbing these mm -hmm. messages mm -hmm. of, you know, white is right yeah. in, in all kinds of spheres, whether business or politics mm -hmm. or entertainment or um, religion. And so, uh, you know, there was a point where the, the way Tyler puts it is like, we think that everything white people do is varsity and everything black people do is JV. Wow. Mm. So it's not that we can't do things similarly, but it's not quite at the level. Like you're still <laughs> trying to make that varsity team. Yeah. And so you got to gain acceptance mm. in these white circles, whether that be the corporate world or the church world or wherever, right? Mm. And so certainly we can adopt and absorb these ideas. And one of the, 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 the sort of kind of white Christian interpretations of the text is this hyper-individualistic mm -hmm. sense. So I, I definitely encourage listeners and viewers to read uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith's book, Divided by Faith. Mm -hmm. They're sociologists and they talk about how even among Westerners, all of us in general, we're more individualistic than mm -hmm. other cultures. But within that, white evangelicals are hyper-individualistic, mm -hmm. which then evinces itself in a, a very individualistic application of the text. And so if you come across the words liberation, mm -hmm. that'll mean A, spiritual, not material, and mm -hmm. B, individual, not collective or corporate, right? Yeah. And when you think about justice, you know, there's, there's hardly even a category or a concept of social collective right. justice, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, you know, I'm speaking in broad terms, there are always exceptions. So, so those are some of the ways it, it leaks out in the different interpretations and applications. And I'll make one more point. Mm -hmm. Because of the experience of oppression that gives black Christians, they, they approach the text, we approach the text with different set of questions. Mm. And so when we read the Exodus, we're not reading that as a spiritual metaphor of freedom or exodus. <laughs> it is that. Yeah. But it's actual literal physical liberation yeah. too. And oftentimes black church theology begins in the Old Testament, begins in Exodus, begins with the prophets decrying injustice in the land, right? Mm. Whereas in many white Christian context, you begin not only in the New Testament, but you begin with the resurrection. Mm. You begin with victory and triumph, or you begin with Paul's epistles, this beautiful, logical, mm. uh, you know, progression of, of statements and facts and principles that I can follow to a T, right? And you almost don't even need the Holy Spirit. You just mm, go yeah. on down the list, right? And again, broad strokes, but um, these are some different starting points that then lead to some different applications of the same eternal truth, mm. but leads us to, to very different kinds of traditions. Yeah. Let's talk about the black church since you bought it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned in your book this unfolding plan of God for ethnic diversity. I mean, we see this in Revelation 7, 9, where every ethnic group, every tribe, every tongue will be gathered around the throne worshiping 
John later goes on to say that we all will bring the glory of our ethnos Mm -hmm. or our cultures into this kingdom, right? If I'm someone that says, okay, I heard you say that, Mm -hmm. but now you're saying that this black church, this entity that exists today is something that is necessary. Mm -hmm. How do you parse that out and say, this is true, but this is also true? Amen. Great question. So others can differ and disagree, but one of the things I say is that as long as there's racism in the white church, there will always be a need for the black church, Mm -hmm. which is to say there will always be a need for communities of faith that are affirming and energizing and restore Mm -hmm. what has been chipped away in terms of the image of God in a society that says white is right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so I think I, I, I have found black Christians by and large to be incredibly, remarkably open to mm-hmm. interracial worship. Mm-hmm. What they're not willing to do is compromise their dignity in order to achieve it. Or when we have, <laughs> we've quickly found out no, it ain't yeah. worth it. Oh, it we, ain't we, cr- we found out, out recently, <laughs> didn't we? My, my, my. <laughs> that sounded like a good podcast. Um, so, so I don't think... God is calling us to remain in toxic relationships. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes because of racism, when we get into a church context, it can be a toxic relationship because it is saying in some way, shape, or form, not explicitly, but the implicit message is to black Christians, you must become white in order to become right yeah. with God like us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, this is implicit. How, how does that show up? Well, there's the aesthetics. Mm. It's the music. It's the preaching styles. It's if you ever gone into a church context where you're like, I don't know the song. Mm. I don't understand that, that sermon illustration because mm. it's not in my context. To date myself a little bit, it's the difference between using the sitcom Friends and using Living Single. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so we come from different cultural contexts in that sense. Even though, but it gets deeper, like ecclesiology, mm. church planting, for instance. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was so much frustration when I'm in these white uh, Christian circles and, and there are black folks around because the expectation is you plant a church, mm. you're full-time as a pastor, you should be self-sustaining within three years, mm-hmm. maybe you get a ton of funding, but like a ridiculous amount where you're like eyeballs bugging out. How did you get that much funding to start a church and you don't have no people yet? Or you're expected to raise funds through your own social networks. Mm-hmm. And black folks are like, because of generational poverty and the racial wealth gap, I don't know folks who have that much money. Right. So, so it, it, it comes across in lots of different subtle ways. And as long as predominantly white churches remain somewhat resistant to acknowledging those realities and then working to change them, there's going to be a need for things like the black church that already understand those realities, have adapted to them, built a theology around them. Mm. And honestly, white churches, especially in this moment of racial chaos, I mean, the landscape is changing constantly, have so much to learn from the black church and more generally from Christians who have grown up in some sort of uh, oppressed or marginalized context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the first shall become last and the last shall become first in that sense. Yeah. Pastor Porter, I, I don't want folks to think that this is unique to our experience because, right. you know, from a biblical perspective, we saw this throughout Old Testament and New Testament. Mm-hmm. We see folks treating people as other yes. uh, in both testaments. You see that in the life of Aaron and Miriam. Yeah. How yeah. dare Moses marry mm, yeah. this woman who is an interracial marriage, right? Yeah. You see that in the book of Acts when we have the Hellenist widows being neglected in the distribution. Mm-hmm. We see this in Paul uh, uh, coming for yeah. Your boy Peter. Yeah, yeah real, yeah. real, real bad. Real, real bad. Real saying, saying I, had, I had to withstand him face to face because he, he was he was being a hypocrite, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this is sort of part of the human condition. So, how is it that we have this gospel that that really helps shape this idea that all of us needs to turn from those sins, mm-hmm. but there's still also this horizontal dimension there, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you know we hear this uh, from from. Uh, a person whose life's work is in history mm. and how it relates um, theologically and ultimately how we apply 
scripture's truth, I think what we go back to, John, are those two bookends of separation and then unification in Babylon and Pentecost. Mm. Um, I'd say all the time, the problem with the Tower of Babel, when God came and confused the languages, is not that they had different languages, it's that nobody took time to learn anyone else's language. <laughs> had they stopped trying to build the tower and learned one another again, mm. they would have continued the tower, they could have. Um, but again, the Spirit's work at Pentecost is to take these people from these varying disparate places uh, um, geographically, mm socioeconomically, um, who have some basis of a similar understanding of, of Judaism, mm. not monolithic at all, but they hear the gospel all in their own language uh, and I, without becoming one language again. Mm. That's not what God does at Pentecost. He does not create one language. He creates the ability to interpret and understand and apply the gospel in all of the different languages. Mm. And I think what what our call is as it relates to our time in uh, uh, our generation, this, this Issachar moment, what must we do, mm. is that we must affirm, of course, our universal dignity, of course, uh, but then also assert that we are not to conform to one language, one style, one mm -hmm. expression of, of divine uh, mm. nature mm. in order to make that that's the standard for Christianity. And I think, I think that's, what, that's what Dr. Tisby's work continues to bear out uh, for us. The other thing is, um, I think the, the, the Western world is the greatest mission field right now uh, because I don't think that many people who have these things that they call churches are actually in churches. <laughs> um, mm. I, I, I really believe that what we have are inherited institutions that have a claim of spiritual truth but are not actually the community of Christ mm. that reflects the glory and image of God. Mm. Uh, and so in that way, the ponds we are to fish in are not necessarily the neighborhoods of the destitute, but, but, but those upper echelon people who consider themselves already redeemed mm. who are what Alistair Begg would call unconverted believers. Mm. Well, um, well. And I think, I think that's what, that's, you know, my granddad said the people who are closest to suffering are closest to Christ. Mm. And there's nobody closer to suffering than those of us who are a part of the, the, those who have been a descendant of enslaved people here in these yet to be United States. Mm. Yeah. So, so we did a podcast episode on cussing. <laughs> and I think I'm about to cuss. Okay. <laughs> and hopefully you all can forgive me for doing so. I want to talk about reconciliation. Ooh, that's a cuss word. Yeah. Which is a cuss word. <laughs> that's a cuss word. For, for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, in, in our history, that word has gone through various iterations, various movements. You've had promise keepers doing some re reconciliation yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. And you define reconciliation in a very specific way. Um, how do you define that, and what does that look like for the American church? Mm. So, um, first we need to start, you know, reconciliation is a Bible word. That's where we get it. It is, you indeed. know, yeah. uh, that we be reconciled to, to God and reconciled to one another, yeah. um, living at peace with God and one another. And so there's a sense in which we won't give that word up. You know, mm -hmm. another curse word, evangelical, evangelical. right? <laughs> um, you know, euangelion is just the Greek word for the good news. And there's a sense in which we won't give that up. But we also mm -hmm. must come to grips with the fact that words have meaning and people give words meaning. And words, uh, the meaning of words changes over time. And so reconciliation, which has been a Bible word within the evangelical context, became essentially a code for, you know, that song, the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Mm -hmm. the, the vision of racial reconciliation that many white evangelicals had was getting people of different hues in the pews, meaning people of different skin colors, racial and ethnic backgrounds, all in the same physical location, and that would be a sign that we are reconciled. Now, that's not a negative thing in and of itself, but what happened was it was a swerve around the issues of systemic and institutional injustice, going back to the hyper-individualism. Because, uh, again, what Emerson and Smith show in their sociological examination is that what white evangelicals tend to do with the, 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 the sin of racism is individualize it. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. such that the problem is a matter of individual uh, and interpersonal attitudes and behavior. It's saying the N-word. It's, it's not liking black people. And so therefore, if that's the problem, what is the solution? Well, I'm nice to black people. <laughs> yeah. and some of my best friends are black. Yeah. It is me and my, which is why they take so much umbrage at the idea that they could uh, passively participate in a system mm -hmm. of white supremacy and white privilege because they're looking individualistically and say, well, I don't treat people badly because of their skin color. Mm -hmm. So why are you saying I'm passively racist or I'm participating in this system of racism? Yeah. It's because you're not doing anything to actively dismantle it and mm -hmm. you are uh, passively benefiting from it yes. in a white-centered society. So all of that um, to say that reconciliation as it was presented by something like promise keep so well intended right but somebody said tears and hugs are, are, are and handshakes are a good start but they don't do anything about the deeper problems no. uh, that we're facing in society and so what I started using around 2014 2015 and the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement I started saying racial justice as opposed to racial reconciliation mm -hmm. because I wanted to emphasize it's not just about having good interpersonal relationships. Let's keep doing that, let's promote that. But we also have to do the bigger things around changing laws and policies and system and instruction. By the way, that's not just federal government level stuff. Yeah. Your church has policies, your workplace has policies, your Christian college or university has policies. And so how can we change these things on a systemic level beyond individual actions or behavior? Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. John, we, we, we're, we're just about out of time now. Are yeah. there any questions that we, you think, let's wrap up with something significant, substantial. Let's, what is the call to action? Let's, let's get to that. Yeah, I think that there is one that, uh, in particular in your book, How to Fight Racism, that deals with oral histories. Yeah. I think that this is something that, that's important for our people, uh, especially given that many of our histories have been stripped from us. Yeah. But you make a suggestion in the book, and I want you to talk about that a little bit as kind of a next step for some people mm. who are trying to think through their own family's history. Yes. Um, how can they go about putting together a oral history yes. from a people that, that have an oral tradition history and Absolutely. past? Yeah. Um, how can we go about doing that to help retain some of the culture that's been stripped away from us? And, and before you answer that, let me put my plug in right here again <laughs> that much of the scripture mm -hmm. that was written down was the result of very carefully kept oral tradition. All the way back in the Old Covenant, when we say Moses wrote oral tradition, the Gospels, oral tradition. Yep. Talk, talk about, right. talk about. Yeah. Listen, I mean, just to put it in context, the, the, the last living remnants of the civil rights generation are passing from this earth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, John Lewis, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, many other giants from uh, the civil rights era, including many of our own relatives who, who, who have many, many different experiences of it. So I'm telling you, we have treasures in the wisdom and the memories and the collective knowledge of the ancestors. And it's so simple to do now with technology. So I keep meaning to do this with my own dad, but I keep getting caught up in the conversation. Put your smartphone in the middle Turn on the voice memo mm -hmm. and say, tell me about grandma. Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, we, we came up during the Great Migration to this area. Why? Or tell me about my family tree. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you know great granddad is kind of light skinned. What's, 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 what's the story behind that? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There are so many treasures. And, and, and I tell you, it, it, to talk to our elders is so humbling and grounding. Mm -hmm. You know, we can get this big head about being activists and on the front lines and progressive on justice and all this stuff. Boy, you sit down and listen to what the old saints went through yeah. and the wisdom they had. So I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, John Perkins, who, who was literally tortured in a, in a Mississippi prison. They took a bent fork and stuck it up his nose. Mm -hmm. um, just one of the things that they did. And, and, and the amount of love that this man has in his 90s still mm -hmm. for yeah. white people, for Racial justice for reconciliation is astounding. One of my mentors is a guy named Bill Pinnell, who's out at uh, Fuller Seminary. He was um, their first black trustee. Wow. They have the Pinnell Center for Black Church Studies named after him. He's 94. And 
some of the same issues we're talking about with race and Christianity, he was talking about in 1967, 68, when he published My Friend the Enemy. Mm -hmm. um, so we have just so much to learn, mm -hmm. and all you have to do, most of the time they're willing to talk, if they trust you, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're <laughs> humble enough, maybe you bring them some cookies, I don't know. Mm. But yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. We, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to start from scratch. We have this great cloud of witnesses, uh, both historically, who we can read and learn about, but also living among us. Mm. And boy, would we be remiss not to draw on their wisdom and experience. John, the Bible says that they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. Mm. Uh, and they loved not their own lives to the death. They were willing to give up their lives in the same way um, to facilitate not just the spreading of the gospel with our lips, but also with our lives, actively advocating for justice involves not just singing and shouting on Sundays, um, not just telling people, hey, Jesus wants you to go to heaven, but getting into the muck and the mire of the issues that we face every single day in this nation, and those of us who have a voice must use that voice for the sake of the glory of God and for the good of uh, those around us. Y'all know I've said since I got here St. Mark 10 years ago, we can't be spiritual if we're not also social. And so it's critical that we do that. Well, we appreciate you all for joining us for this particular episode. Hopefully we said something that was encouraging for you and also challenging for you as well. We want to encourage you all to go over to follow our podcast on all the streaming platforms. We want to make sure you give us a review. Go in and rate and review it so that our podcast can continue to get the love that you all have been showing us for the past several months. As always, we want to make sure you guys join us for our next session as we jump back into the genres of biblical text. We cannot wait to see you all next go-round. This has been The Growth Factor, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. Be sure to follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our Facebook group, The Growth Factor, for daily motivational content. Let's keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening.